Well, I missed the first day, of course, because I was stuck on a half-term holiday, so the director was very... <laughs> I had to email her from uh, one o'clock in the morning from a, a taxi queue outside an airport, along with two other flights worth of people who hadn't made it home on a Sunday night with all these other people going, but they're supposed to be at school tomorrow morning. And so I had to email Nina and say, I'm so sorry, I'm going to miss the first day. And then stupidly offered in my sort of people-pleasing, oh shit way, uh, to do the read-through from the airport and then realised I would actually be in a check-in queue. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. I love the idea of doing the first day of rehearsals, the read-through of Rock and Roll by Tom Stoffard <laughs> in a check-in queue with, with a crowd gathering yeah. to really listen. I watch. know, it would have been entertaining because we were delayed again. So actually probably might have been quite nice <laughs> for them to hear a nice, a nice play from, from the queue. That was but exciting to be in a revival of um, that play and, yeah. and working with Stofford at Hampstead Theatre, Nina Rain directing. Yeah, they've only, been, they, they've only just announced it. They announced yes. it literally a couple of days before we went into rehearsal. But yeah, it's it's glorious. Um, I love his work, if I, as I've said in episodes yeah. of, of the yeah. pod I just you know and so yeah and it is I did see it when it was at, not at the court but when it transferred to the uh Duke of York's um both with the first company and then the second company with uh right. with Brian Cox and Rufus Sewell and and Sinead Cusack and then uh David Calder and Dominic West and Emma Fielding wow yeah yeah I I, yes, I only saw the first cast. I always think the thing about Stafford is it's always exciting that um, there's something about his plays that makes you just think it's wonderful when, the, you know, the, the curtain's going up metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. Always literally. But you just, uh, and the, I went to the first night of that at the Royal Court and oh, you really? didn't know what to expect and it just felt so thrilling and yeah. indeed was. And so I really look forward to seeing it again. Yeah, I mean, it would yeah. be lovely to see it at Hampstead. And, I, yeah, I'm re- and the other thing I, I, I didn't realise about Tom, I just assumed that he had gone to university and he didn't. He went straight into journalism. Yes, I think I did know that. Did you? I didn't I think know I that did. In Bristol, didn't it? Was it in Bristol? Was it? I, I th- think it was in Bristol. I haven't got that yeah. far, but I just... It amazes me. And, and then when he talks about all the information that's in a, so many of his plays that it is based on years of reading and a love of words and ideas and stuff, and, and he says it's not always his intention that audiences should understand what's being said he has a great joy of having that level of information and intrigue and beautiful words sort of flooding over him that's yeah. what he enjoys is in an audience sitting in an audience and and so that's what he puts into his plays go. right lovely Which, he's a, a noble member of the journalistic profession yeah and he actually read a very funny play about being a critic which i can't remember oh really um well, it's it's a murder mystery, but it features um, a critic. So we might talk about that on a subsequent oh, podcast. Oh, God, how brilliant. Anyhow, here we are yes. on our new episode of As the Actress Said to the Critic, with me, the critic, Sarah Crompton. And with me, the actress, Nancy Carroll. We haven't seen each other for a bit because you've been working and I've been yeah. ill. So I've been having a horrible winter cold. Oh, no, I didn't. Oh. No. So, That's yeah, awful. feeling sorry for myself. But yeah, anyway, yeah, now yeah. I'm back horrible. in full form. Yeah. Back in Good. the stalls, seeing things. Um, and I thought it would be, we thought it would be interesting to talk about what makes a classic play and what makes plays that people want to revive in the light of um, yeah. you doing rock and roll. And also, it seems to be a conversation that we keep 
um, circling around a bit about how plays come to be regarded as classics and what makes them a classic, what makes people want to revive them and why particular plays get revived and other plays don't. None of which we'll be entirely able to answer, but we might be able to yeah. send out some thoughts. And I've been thinking a lot, actually, about plays that become classics right. when the critics haven't liked them. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast um, uh, about Betrayal, the Harold Pinter, yeah. which everybody assumes was a hit from the very start and in right. fact got distinctly sniffy reviews right, right, right. Uh, on the first night. And people really, really didn't like it at all. And, yeah. um, you know, it's a play about um, an affair, essentially, and a friendship. So, yeah. you know, yeah. the idea of... Um, and it's, it's But told in reverse. Told in reverse. Why did people like it, dislike it, rather? They, well, it was very interesting. I talked to Penelope Wilton, and um, who was in that first cast with um, Daniel Massey and Michael Gamble. Yeah, amazing. And it's now the first night everybody wishes they'd been at. Yeah, yeah. Because it must have been so exciting. But she said that she felt that people didn't quite get it and were a bit dismissive of it because they felt that Pinter was stepping outside his milieu. Right. So up till that point, he'd written plays about the working class about the homeless about the kind of life of the streets to some extent you know caretaker homecoming and so on and then when you got to um betrayal he's writing about a book publisher and his wife and it's the the whole sort of class thing has changed right and um she suggested that she people came expecting one thing and were thrown by it. Oh, that's interesting. Which I think is interesting. But it was, they were they were really rubbish reviews. They weren't just kind of minus, um, yeah. you know, sort of, oh, well, I don't know. They really were, this will never work. It's confusing. It's trite. And yet Isn't now... Isn't amazing, though, that expectation plays a part in overall enjoyment? You know, there's so little that you can possibly know before the lights go down yeah. and the action begins. And yet people come with some predetermined idea about what they're expecting. I mean, obviously, we've had that conversation lots because of reviews. But the reality of of something coming off a page and being an experience that takes place in front of you is such a different sort of thing, isn't it? One is in your head and one is in your body because it literally sort of vibrates your anatomy. And and, and so it is you, 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 you experience something viscerally and... But expectation is something else, and and that is that's so funny because I think there must be so many stories about expectation going one way or the other. Yeah. Like you know, we've mentioned before with Closer that yes. it was the critics that swayed an audience that gave them permission to enjoy it, and so even the, so, the critics alerted future audiences after the press night to say, this isn't what you expect. This isn't anything that we've seen before. However, it's pretty extraordinary, very funny, and the way of things to come. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. And I think actually it is, I mean, I always, when I'm talking to people about reviewing and and uh, try say that the, the biggest thing you should go with is, is as open a mind as possible. And yeah. it's quite hard to do. Yeah, of course. To go like that blank canvas and just kind of be be ready to receive it. And I think two things happen really with plays that new plays and why their status changes. The first is that I think that it's Peggy Ramsey said this thing that I think David Hare quoted before about the 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 new is ugly the the new quite often isn't easy yeah and so it's sometimes quite hard to judge something that puts your back up 
Yeah. Um, because it's unpleasant. Right. And that happened with ghosts. Oh, interesting. Which, yeah, um, yeah. you know, for Ibsen, somebody said it was like, a, I think they said it was like a public drain, the Daily oh, Telegraph wow, wow. described it as. And um, and it happened a bit with Closer, where people were, were slightly alarmed. Yeah. And um, I think that that's sort of true, that people kind of are, are sort of shocked and their reaction to shock is to think, oh, it's not really very good. Yeah. Um, and I think it happened a lot with Pinter because... Actually, everybody thought they knew what Pinter was. They all yeah, thought it was yeah. the pauses and, and, and the, as I say, the sort of certain milia. And then always, actually, as he wrote, he changed form, he changed interest. Um, you know, if you look at old times, it's sort of a, um, completely different from No Man's Land. They're yeah, all yeah. really, really different plays. Yeah. And I remember being at the first, just this, my one other Pinter bit is that on my, I went to the first night of Moonlight. Right. And I, I think I have said this before. And I was sitting next to Pinter <gasps> by accident. I wasn't I reviewing. I think you have it. said this before. I bet, oh, okay. Well, I, I was sitting next to Pinter. Yeah. And it was sort of by accident. I wasn't there as a, a critic or anything. Right. I wouldn't have been sitting next to Pinter if I'd been there as a critic. So I was sitting next to him. And um, it, 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 it happened. Yeah. And, and everybody left the theatre. Everybody applauded at yeah. the end intensely. But everybody left the theatre absolutely silently. And I am absolutely convinced that the reason was that nobody had really understood what we'd seen because I think Moonlight is a dream play and I think right. it's got a ghost figure in it. And I don't think people realised that yeah, on the night yeah. and everybody equally was so scared of Pinter that they didn't want to say loudly well obviously the girl was a ghost oh really in case she wasn't and indeed you know she I think she is but you know yeah. she might not be um and I think and that again was the sort of shock of something completely unexpected I don't think anybody had expected that play yeah and I think that is an interesting thing and somehow plays have to climb over that to become Classics. And yeah, yeah. Look back in anger. Same thing. People thought it was just so common to put a, you know, a, an ironing board on stage. Really, and that was why they didn't like it. They yeah, just thought yeah. it was, you didn't want to see that in a nice theatre. Yeah, know? I mean, I, I, I don't know what the answer is because, you know, culturally and, um, lingually and, and geographically and all this, you know, people have different takes on different things and and. Writers and directors will pick things up, you know, artistic directors will pick things up and go, you know, this is something I was always fascinated by and I'd like to look at it again. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if something comes from a true place within a, a playwright, that that true, the truths of that, the truth of that will be universal on some human level. And so other humans will then respond to it. Yeah. Um, knowing that we were going to be talking about what makes a good play or why a play is revived, what makes a classic play. You know, I was thinking about the nature of structure yeah, and how, you know, on screen, pe people play around with timelines. You know, you have flashbacks, you have flash forwards, you, you, and, and, but somehow there, you know, there is something that works so well about the beginning, the middle and the end. Mm. And maybe that was what, you know, there's something odd about betrayal initially because it's yes. it's told in reverse. I remember uh, years ago when I was doing a season at Bath, I mean, blimey, centuries ago, but so Peter Hall's wife, Nikki Fry, 
had done an adaptation of uh, Henry James's novel, A Portrait of a Lady, but she had told that in reverse. Right. And I can't remember whether it got put on. It may well have done. But we did a reading of it when we were there. And there is something interesting about some, you know, stories being told in reverse mm. and what they reveal, except that there's something beautiful, I suppose, about realising that nothing happens by accident. Yeah. Or that there's, you know, and that to to examine that or the, 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 when the seed was sown. You think, I don't even know how that happened. You tell the story in reverse. Yeah. And actually, there is something sort of forensically fascinating about you go, oh God, okay, I see, I see. This moment wasn't casual. This moment wasn't, you know, it was it. it something occurred, seemingly innocently. Yeah. Um. And, and and then another thing I did, which I think I've mentioned before, a workshop that it was an idea that Max Stafford Clark had been sort of ruminating on with Patrick Marber about whether you can tell a story as, as a stream of consciousness. Oh, yes. I think I've mentioned well, it. I, yeah, I think Patrick did. Yeah, yes. the, um, yeah, yeah the exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and, and we were talking about the nature of the way our brains actually work, which is that one thought will fire another, inspire another, be reminded of another. And that if you can, if you can tell a story like that, will an audience be able to follow it? But there is something hugely comforting about a beginning, a middle and an yes. end. Yes. I, I think that's I think that's a really interesting observation because it is true that um, Moonlight was kind of an interesting structure. It took yeah. place in two time frames. Yeah. Um, it's also true that Merrily We Roll Along, which is oh, yes, currently that, yeah. en enjoying huge success on Broadway, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. was a total flop because uh, same thing happened right, that okay. you start with. Um, you the trouble is you always start with a downer. And then you end with the high. And right, so there's, right. there's a kind of weird thing that happens. And now, you know, people accept Merrily We Roll Along and Indeed Betrayal as absolute classics. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. Absolute define the classic play. But it took a long time. And I think you're right that maybe people do need that sense of uh, uh, structure to hold them. Also, I do think that plays that very often get revived over and over yeah. have have a very, very strong narrative thread. Yeah. I mean, they're the ones that, you know, people return to time and time again. And, yeah. and because they feel more comforting as a, you know, you can be engrossed in them in a way. If you look yes. at the Ibsens that are done, they are the ones that are the most satisfying stories. Yeah. Um, and I think that's interesting as a thought. Yeah. I think the other thing that's interesting is how, you know, they're always, journalists are always, myself included, uh, writing articles saying, oh, it's an absolute scandal that um, the National, the RSC, blah, doesn't do more revivals and, yeah, the, you know, yeah. all these great plays sitting around. But I think the other problem is there are so many great plays yes, yes. <laughs> sitting around that in a sense a play has to keep finding... It's time. Yeah. And restoration comedy, I think, when I was first going to the theatre, yeah. I would see Congreve and Witchley plays all the time. Yeah, yeah. And now I don't think I've seen a restoration comedy since London Assurance at um, the National. And I'm, Jack, did you see Jack Absolute Flies oh, again? Oh, no, that, yes, of course, that is. But that, yes. But then you could argue that yes. if you take the foundations of something that has had decades and decades of success with having been revived since it was first written, and then you, you put that story, use it as a model, you know, to add to and put it in an, an 
in a co- new context. Is it a new play or is it a yeah. revival? Because remind me, I missed Jack Absolute. So that was... They so it was took... Richard Beam with Oliver Chris. Yeah. Um, and it was based on the rivals. Which is right. Sheridan? Which is Sheridan. Sheridan. And, uh, but they set it in World War Two. Right. Brilliant. Um, Brilliant notion. But it was, it was fantastic. You know, I mean, I loved it. I loved it. And, and it was one of the plays that... Uh, had started rehearsals as we all got locked down and then they brought it back right. um, when everything opened up again. And some of the original cast weren't then free and, in fact, uh, I think it was a new director as well. But it was it was really, really clever. And I think, I wonder if we need some more words around adaptation and revival and whatever because it's, you know, you could argue, as we've said before, there is no original story. Yeah. Well, there were, I think we've said there was like six stories. There are maybe six stories. Yeah, and then or seven. Yeah. Or five. Yeah. There <laughs> are some stories. A number. <laughs> Less than <laughs> ten. Number. And yeah, um, yeah, but I, you know, you just, everything borrows from everything else. Yes. And, and so the concept of the new play as opposed to the revival, you know, any new company, any new director, any new costume designer, set designer, music composer, everything creates so much new uh, DNA in yeah. the body that will then go on. It's sort of, you know, it is a revival, of course, but the revival is, uh, there's more newness than there is oldness. Sometimes. I think I think that I think well it's interesting because they're also um I'm very much looking forward to seeing um She Stoops to Conquer. Oh right. Which is being revived at the Orange Tree, which oh, I brilliant. did for um well it was then because I'm so old, O level. Right. And so it's one of those texts that's kind of ingrained in my memory in ways that are not entirely pleasant because yes. I remember all the very small writing in the margins about yeah, yeah, this yeah. means X and this does that. But nevertheless, I they with that revival, which is quite exciting with nice uh, Tanya Reynolds and um, Freddie Fox um, and Greta Skaki, wonderful cast. Yeah, yeah. And they've moved that up to the 1930s. Oh, fantastic. And it's, I wonder if that's, that's a... a whether that's as far, you know, like restoration comedy now, 16th, 17th century, seems too far away. Yes. But um, in fact, if you bring it up to 1930s, 1940s, yes. which still seems a long way away, yes. it sits quite comfortably there and maybe more comfortably there yeah. than, than back in its original setting. But you did, um, you did The Recruiting Officer, which yeah. was in its original setting and yes. which possibly has to be out. In a way, uh, yes, possibly because, yeah, unless you did it, well, you, you could, could do, do a sort of national service. You could do a national service, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you literally recruiting from the sort of farms and stuff around the countryside. It's a little bit Dad's Army. You could do a sort of, um, I don't know. We did Man of Mode as a modern retelling in the Olivier, right? Um, but. Uh, yeah, it was pretty traditional. It was Josie Rourke's inaugural production at the um, at the Donmar. Uh, although I do remember, <laughs> I do remember them having traditional lighting of candlelight, can- actual candles. They had this beautiful set, yeah, and the whole of the, the back set. was yes. sort of 
sconces. You call them sconces? Yeah, with, with where the you put the candle. Yeah. yeah, and it was a couple of performances where I got wax on my boots and I fell flat on my ass and just couldn't get up again and it was just hilarious. Anyway, that was by the by. But, but, but yes, that the was... The dangers of a period performance. Yeah, and it was sort of... It was interesting because there are things when you do things very, very traditionally that you have to investigate what they would have meant in terms of, like, we had lots of discussions over, you know, various sort of instruments that soldiers would have carried around to alert their arrival. And, I mean, basic, basic things. So we were trying to work out what is an alarming noise. And, you know, we had those sorts of conversations. Whereas if you you do update things, you can completely take stuff like that out and replace it with the equivalent. So it then becomes, you know... If you if you were to do it in I don't know nineteen when was it, when did national service finish was it oh it goes 60s, on for ages sixties yeah sixties I don't know what Early the equivalent 60s. would have been in the nineteen sixties but but it is quite it is quite nice being able to modernize things inside you know and be able to take things apart and replace so you can have the same effect on a modern audience is that audiences would have had at the time when the play was originally written, yeah. as opposed to trying to replicate shock or, yes. or or excitement over something, you know, that doesn't have the modern equivalent effect. Yeah. Does that make uh, any sense yes, at all? Yes, it does. And I think, I, think it's, I think it's fascinating. I think your notion that you have to, maybe, we maybe have to think about things as having different, um, not regarded as revival or or or... or, or or new, but to think of things as new. Yeah. Because very often it, it is the director yeah. who, for whatever reason and however they set it, yeah. wants to do the play. Yeah, yeah. So Josie Rourke, who did um, Recruiting Officer, yeah. and she's she loves restoration comedy. Yeah. And I know that, I mean, I've seen her work magic with a restoration comedy. Yeah. Because she feels passionately that she wants people to kind of understand it and respond to it. Yeah. And maybe that is the key. And one of the things that's exciting next year is that um Thomas Ostermeyer is doing Enemy of the People oh, with brilliant. Matt Smith. But again with a kind of very distinct vision to it. Yeah. And obviously that play now um seems as if it was written yesterday. I mean, yeah, you know, it's yeah. somebody warning of um, ecological disaster who isn't listened to. Right. And right. I think, so that will be fascinating. But again, I feel it's, a, you know, it is a director saying, well, I'd like to do this, I'd like to do this. Yeah. Um, with a certain actor. Robert Icke's, you know, very big on saying, I want to do this play. Yeah. And um, he did A Wild Duck, which is an Ibsen that, again, in my feeling, is I used to see it a lot when yeah. I was younger and I don't see it so often. So that the nature of what is defined as a classic does change all the time. Yeah. And people do rediscover things that then become classics. Well, rest- yeah, and restoration is quite an interesting one because, I, I mean, I know people like Selena Cadell who is passionate, passionate, passionate about restoration. She teaches about restoration. She's directed loads of restoration. She's been in loads of restoration. And she loves it. And, and I think what's, what's interesting about the word good is that, you know, good is great. I mean, we've talked about it in terms of star reviews and, you know, but but people are anxious to be applauded for creating something that is so exciting because nobody's ever thought of it before yeah. and it's the best version of something and it suits the 
the modern audience in the most articulate and exciting way. And, you know, young audiences will rediscover this and all the rest of it. But actually, it, it, it what I should, what I feel should be celebrated is the investigation. Yeah. Rather yes. than it going, oh, well, that doesn't work yes. as an interpretation. Yes, yeah. Actually, how exciting that young directors and and theatres with new young artistic directors, what you know, want to pick these things up, dust them off and have another have look, a look at them. And realise, you know, this is like even just doing the Stoppard at, at the moment. I, what, I mean, I love his plays. I watched it all those years ago. But it isn't until you get your head into it that you realise how incredibly beautiful his writing is. Yeah. And to be reminded of that through the rehearsal process, you think, oh, my God, yeah. it's just glorious. And, you know, and it's true of comedy and restoration comedy and, you know, and verse in Shakespeare. You have, as you get further away from it in your life and you forget certain bits of it, when you revisit something, you, oh, gosh, it's... Yeah. That, that doesn't doesn't need interpretation. That's just lovely and yeah. and and that's why that's why these plays survive and i think and it's, keep coming back yeah, yeah. And, and, it's, and it is that thing of people finding something in them they go yeah i'd like to share this with other people and yeah. actually if it doesn't work it doesn't work but you have got the playback yeah um you know ghosts go back to that i mean has been a classic example of something that once it was revived became revived and revived and revived and i've seen so many amazing interpretations of ghosts one about to open at the globe but you know i'd seen i saw vanessa redgrave do it i saw leslie manville do it and you know every one of them cast some new light yeah leslie manville you know richard air directed it and it, it shot through i mean they, it was the quick you know like the quickest ghost you'd really? ever seen but e incredibly sort of claustrophobic and involving and engrossing and then others would be more expansive and it is always those different nuances and sometimes things work sometimes they don't sometimes they work for me in an audience and they don't work for other people and yeah. i think I think it is true that you're, you're right. The investigation is all. I mean, it is it is great. And then it's a question of what we're investigating. I slightly think that it also comes down to a view of theatre history because I was very struck that in the last podcast you talked about Granville Barker. Yeah. I don't think I've... Who was a hugely significant figure. And I feel I haven't really seen very much of his work right. on stage. I was struck the other night in University Challenge with... Um, there was a question about the rover by Afra Ben, and I thought um, I've only seen that once. Yeah, and I don't. I, I I kind of I'd like there to be a kind of a bigger range of plays that yeah. people are looking at because I think the one the one danger that the area in which I do agree with uh, people who worry about the lack of significant revivals is that I'd I'd like. I'd like my theatre history to be enlarged and and perhaps, you know, the new audiences coming in so yeah. that they see plays that, that are just kind of vanishing a bit. Yeah. Um, but it is hard because there are so many, you know, it's, it would be like last week when we talked about how things we'd loved at the National Theatre. Yeah. I mean, if I you made me a ask me to make a list of plays I'd like to see revived, it would go on it would crowd out all new writing. Yeah, yeah. And I want to see new writing. Yeah. So it is, a, it is a tricky balance. And it's interesting as well with all, like, you know, sw gender swapping and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. That It is, 
that is such a simple idea and yet that opens up so much i mean yeah. in both directions really if you give something to a, a you know if you give a, a part traditionally played by a man to a woman and vice versa or any any sort of rethinking in terms of casting i think you open up the play tenfold yeah you know because again you're playing with audience expectations but you then what you get for nothing is the prism of that what that person brings to it and you know i there is so much that can be rediscovered in that way you know and and make as you say make opens up the canon again in terms of what should be revived and what should be played with yeah it um, was just interesting to see yeah because it's the voice the mm. human voice and and what we have for nothing or what we what we bring um without even knowing it mm. i mean there's such an interesting chemistry around that I, in i don't know if i've said this before but like years and years ago sitting in for casting you know being the other person reading for casting directors or if i've been cast in something and have you know been reading the part that i will then play for people that you know they're still casting other people in what you bring into the room what your voice tell says yeah. what, how you hold yourself you know the light in your eyes is so much that you have no control over and yet what you bring with that and there is only one of you mm. you know is is extraordinary and it's such a stupidly simple idea okay there is only one of you there is only one yeah. of you yeah, yeah. you know and, and how you interpret lines even if someone gives you a line reading it's with your you know weight and gravitas or lightness of touch or your emotion or whatever you decide to throw away. I mean, they're simple, simple choices, but it changes everything. everything. Yeah. You know, and even from if if a show is lucky enough to stay on in town for a while and you have a recast, yes. that's a fascinating thing. Yeah, I love thing. a recast, yes. Or no, even it understudies, is. if an understudy yeah. goes yeah. on, it changes the temperature on, yeah. on stage and then you realise how, you know... The, the burden and also the wonder of what it is to carry a role on stage. Yeah. You know, I always love that because I think one of the things that you feel sometimes, and I feel this about, you know, I'm lucky enough to have seen down the years repeated productions of certain things, yeah. Ghost being a case in point, Cherry Orchard. And what happens is what happens when you watch like ballets like Swan Lake over and over again is that you sort of see the ghost of the other person standing behind the yeah. new person and you'll remember things that other people have done. Yeah. But nevertheless, that new interpretation, that new voice will will kind of fill you and you will, yeah, see it in a different way. And you see new things in yeah. play yeah, all yeah. the time. And I think... I do think that's why, that's the other reason actually that revival kind of is a richness that you do just go on and on sort of exploring and exploring through different interpretations. Yeah. So, and it is interesting. I think what I worry about and, you know, coming to a close of the, my last thought is what's happened with ballet particularly is that you, we are seeing an awful lot of Swan Lakes and Sleeping Beauties. Actually, not so much Sleeping Beauty because oddly Sleeping Beauty doesn't sell. Swan Lake, Giselle, Nutcracker. Those right. are absolutely now the tent poles of the ballet repertoire right. in across the world, actually. Okay. Those are what you see. And the reason that they come back over and over again is that they are familiar and the name sells. Everybody knows. And that's, I think, why we're getting... Um, a lot of film adaptations on stage right. because the name sells. So what I hope doesn't happen is that people 
feel that they can't revive things because they've been half forgotten. Right. Or the name doesn't. So like the Voisey Inheritance, like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Lady Wyndham is fan or whatever. Yeah. Plays that are just kind of slightly, becoming slightly half forgotten. Yeah. Um, And that people might feel that they put off audience because it is a very tough sell out there at the moment but i but i also love it when people play around with things i remember when um patrick marber's um version of miss julie went on at the yeah. Doma, and he literally called it after miss julie and it's sort of you sort of want people to be robustly brave and go you know what there's so much about this that i just want to put back on a stage but i'm just going to play around with it yeah so you don't think it's dusty and you don't think it's anything else and just reintroduce you to these beautifully written characters and who have all these problems and all these hang-ups and all this dysfunction that as a modern audience or any audience from any age we can look at it and go oh okay we're not alone yeah. in our in our dysfunction and it, you know what's so beautiful about Tom Stoppard's rock and roll as well and and re-looking at that even when Tom Stoppard is in the room which he was for the first week and he's sort of letting us get on with it a bit but you know he's coming back but and I think you know the time between opening it at the Royal Court and it going to the Duke of York's and it's been done all over the world and stuff but this is the first time it's been done here for a while in London is that he feels ultimately you know his words that what he's written is a love story, right? And that we we worry that we that we won't understand the Marxist theory or that the ancient Greek references to to poets and stuff. But actually, what it's about is love yeah. and people, and you know what it is to live through a political ideology and what it is to hold on to a political ideology from thousands of miles away yeah. and about how you live your life and whether that has anything to do with what's actually happening in your life. Yeah. And But ultimately, the thing that just makes me cry every time, you know, we watch certain bits of it is that it's about life and death yeah. Yeah. and and how we have so little control over it, but that, you know, what we hold on to and how grief operates and feeds into our relationships with people who are still here. Are they, they are universal stories and they literally make your stomach skip no. because it's about being alive. Yeah. And, and all of those restoration comedies and Shakespeare plays and modern plays and musicals, and they all work because somebody in the audience looks up and goes, oh, God, that's... Well, I feel like that. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. whether or not you sort of watch somebody going through it or it's a cue for a song, yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing is yeah. that you relate to it. And the same is true of lost plays is that sometimes you go back to them and you think, ah, and now I see why they got lost yeah. because they don't yes. necessarily have, have, the, that. have yes. the, the juice. It, they've got some pith and a, some really good tasting peel but they don't necessarily have the juice <laughs> and you know it's nothing wrong with peel but i uh, but you know I, there There's is quite a lot wrong with peel but, wait, <laughs> but it's it's sort of it is interesting you think oh okay that that play was worth investigating yeah. but i can see why why it went why yes. it sort of got put down the sort of in yes. in file a bit if that's yes i i think you can see that and i think that's true and 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 equally in the spirit you know that 
investigation is worth it. I'm always glad to see those. But you are absolutely right. You can see a classic when you see a classic. You know that it has got exactly what you're describing, that sense of spirit in it that that kind of reaches out. And juice. And juice, lots of juice. I think that's as good a moment as any to end on. Uh, But what I do just want to add is if you like listening to us on, as the actress said to the critic, please subscribe wherever you listen, whether it's on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen, just click that subscribe button and then you'll know when we've got a new episode coming out and we will build our subscriber base, which will be very, very nice. Yeah. And having said that, Goodbye from me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, the critic.